absolutely battle your ass off. Don't come in here expecting to revolutionize an industry or even a product and have the hubris to think that it's going to be easy or that you know someone else hasn't thought of it. We're about 150 times more strawberries per square foot of floor space than an outdoor farm is. So from a floor space perspective, it's much more, much more productive. Hello everyone, welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Sam Bertram, founder and CEO of 1.1. 1.1 is a vertical farming technology startup. We will unpack what that means today. But essentially, they build facilities that grow fruits and vegetables inside a warehouse on several levels. They rely on technologies such as robotic automation, computer vision, and Internet of Things to optimize plant growth and reduce production cost. 1.1 started in 2017, and they have already raised over $60 million to date from great investors, including the tennis player Novak Djokovic. They have two vertical farms, one in Arizona and the other one in California with about 80 employees growing various leafy greens. In this show, you'll hear about what it takes to found a climate tech startup after grad school. We will understand what vertical farming is, how that technology actually works, and which plants can grow in these conditions. We'll also break down the environmental impact of conventional agriculture and understand how vertical farming can reduce that massive footprint. Finally, we will discuss the unit economics challenge that vertical farming has today and which funding model could help those farms really scale from a few pilot farms today to becoming the leading farming method for some plants. So let's get started. Sam, welcome to the show. How are you today? Uh, 11 out of 10, mate. Can't complain. So I hear you're based in, in Phoenix, but I, I seem to detect a, a very slight Australian vibe here, right? Or I'm faking it, but yes, from Australia originally. Okay, you fake it really well. Um, <laughs> before we talk about 1.1 and, and vertical farming, and I'm, I'm super excited about all these topics, could you start just by introducing yourself? Sure, yeah. So my name's Sam Bertram. I was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1993. I'm 29. Most of my upbringing was centered around tennis, having fun, and education in that order of proficiency. So my brother and I, John, who was the co-founder of this business, the CTO, we came to the United States to play tennis. And then we started our engineering degrees. He deserved to be in engineering school. I did not, but managed to get my way in. And then we completed our master's. My master's was in robotics and mechatronics and his master's was in power engineering. And we began the business in 2017. So personally, in my free time, of which there isn't much. Uh, I like to spend that with my almost four-year-old daughter and uh, as well indulge in specific topics, you know, philosophy, apolitical politics, astronomy, these kinds of things. And um, you said you played professional tennis. How far along did you go in, uh, in this career path? Never made it to professional. We came to the US to play tennis. We played collegiate tennis. I was okay. at Santa Clara University. John was down in Santa Barbara. But our COO was a professional tennis player. Our head of business development was a tennis player. Some of our major financiers were professional tennis players. So I'm surrounded by uh, individuals that are much better at tennis than I am, which is no surprise. And I see when you say professional player, I see there's Novak Djokovic in your, in your investors. He is a wonderful man, wonderful human being. And he really, he's one of the few people that's willing to stand up for what he believes in and one of the few people who's willing to put his money where his mouth is. So 
you know, he was some of the first money into our business in 2017 and he's been nothing but supportive all the way through. So let's go back to 2017. So you say you're in grad school, uh, working robotics, your brother is also an engineer. Um, can you walk us a bit through like the thought process of how you get started in 1.1 and what were you interested by uh, at the time? We have been keenly aware of our mortality for our entire lives and we've been keenly aware of our blessings for our entire lives. And when that's been drummed into you enough, it starts to become your own personal habit. And when you think about these things, you start to realize, okay, I've got a very short period of time to squeeze as much juice out of the orange of life. How do we do so? And you start to step down that sort of logical chain and you get to a point where you say, okay, well, I want to make the greatest difference in the shortest period of time. How do I do that? So we researched, of course, education, desalination, nuclear power, transportation, all of these kinds of things. So we went to the WHO's website to understand what are the leading causes of suffering and death. And number one is poor nutrition and number two is poor access to medicine. We want to find solutions to those things now. Of course, agriculture is the answer to that question. And what sits at the bottom of all of those supply chains, all of those food chains is plants. Uh, whether you're eating a plant directly or whether you're eating meat, you're still eating the plant indirectly. The primary objective for us is to develop a system that can solve the problem of 821 million people not getting access to food on a regular basis. It just so happens that plants are also a very, very useful vehicle to, uh, to grow pharmaceutical products. So access to medicines is number two. Okay. So you start really from this view of this is nutrition, the challenge we're going to address, because that's the biggest one you've identified. How do you move from nutrition to vertical farming? Okay, so what are the ways that we produce plants? Most fundamentally, of course, outdoors, 99% of all the world's plant production is outdoors still. That's changing. Greenhouses are a very well-established form of plant production, but there are still limitations to them. They still rely on a supply chain. But if, if we can completely isolate the plant from all environmental factors, we don't have to worry about sunny days, cold days, rainy days, pests, windy days, these kinds of things. We are not the first ones to come up with the concept of vertical farming. You know, that, was, that came up with a, a long, long time ago. But if I may continue down this path, we realize that vertical farming could dissociate itself from geographical constraints. We could put it anywhere. And the other encouraging part about all of this was in 2017, vertical farms had not made it and when you look at all of these incredible value propositions why is it that it, this isn't everywhere already and this, the, the answer was clear which is unit economics when you're competing with a 10,000 year old industry on unit economics that's like saying a, a, the, the first production car needs to beat a horse in unit economics that's going to be tough but of course and we are at the Model T Ford phase of the vertical farming industry though it's much more high tech than a you know, a, a 20s or 30s car, we're very early. We don't even know that air conditioning can be put into a car. We don't even know that a radio can be put into a car. We haven't even heard or thought about seat belts. So it's early, early, early days. But the ability for this technology to genuinely change the world is 100% there. I love the, the T-Model analogy. So, okay, so you're finishing grad school. You identified as vertical farming as the idea you want to focus on with your brother. How do you get started on this? You know, how do you validate the idea? You obviously can't build 10 million facility right away. 
are you making this on a slide and an Excel model to check the economic viability? How do you convince yourself? Spot on. So we need first we need to figure out, okay, how far away is vertical farming actually from making this economically feasible? Wasn't far. If it was $100 per pound versus the $1 per pound in the outdoor farm, then we might have a bit of an issue. No, you, at the beginning of this, we were talking about 10x. Uh, so, you know, closer to $10 a pound. So those initial, you know, does it pass the laugh test? Is this possible? Those were the first calculations that we did. So practically it was building a prototype. It was building a slide deck. It was building pro forma financials. It was building a business plan. It was going out to VCs, high net worth individuals, and just putting it on the line. You know, an infinite number of people said no. A couple of them fell asleep during the pitch. Many of them didn't turn up. This is all part of it. You know, this is not, it's, I'm not, you know, poor me. This is all part of the play. I built a prototype as part of my master's thesis uh, in, in mechatronics, robotics and mechatronics and controls. When that was completed, I mean, prototypes are meant to be bad, but this was bad. But based upon that, like just the, the bullishness that we had on the idea, the belief we had in the idea. We brought lots of investors through this first iteration, growing plants on a vertical plane using aeroponics, no robotics whatsoever, and a small control system just to show, you know, we know how to turn lights on and off, we know how to turn pumps on and off, yada, 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 you know, sensor readings, these kinds of things. So a very, very basic prototype. The first VC to put $250,000 into our business, when I brought them through, I went and visited the facility 30 minutes before they were meant to come in and the, all the plants were dead and there was five gallons of water all over the floor. I said, screw it, I'm still gonna bring these guys in. Like, yes, it's dead, yes, it fails, such is life. You know, but this is the concept and this is what we have to do and here's this tiny malfunction, but who cares? And they ended up putting 250 grand into the company alongside Novak. But it was, with those steps came a huge amount of enthusiasm and belief. And if you don't have that, it's, you just you just simply can't do it. It just gets it gets you through the the darker times. I I hope you have still some pictures of that that early prototype. Oh, it's been, it's been yeah. see now. Me making silly faces in front of it, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you get this early funding. You have this prototype. Can you introduce us a bit to nowadays? Like, how does the technology actually work? Like, moving away from the the prototype, the actual tech. Uh, maybe, you know, if we follow the life of, I don't know, salad or, or spinach, something that's grown your facility from the seeding to the shipping, how does it happen and what are the techs that are involved in there? Sure. So, I mean, we, we sort of invented a way to grow plants, which is vertical plane aeroponics. And then we invented the robotics that automate many of the functions inside of the facility. Okay, so time to break down what vertical farming is about and what is the aeroponics vertical farming that Sam just talked about. Vertical farming really is indoor, soilless vertical farming. Indoor farming, by opposition to traditional outdoor open field farming, consists in growing crops in a controlled environment, indoor. The most widespread indoor farming method today are greenhouses. They shield plants from outside pests and they enable farmers to control the indoor temperature. So that's for indoor farming. Now, indoor farming can also be soilless. What does that mean? When you are outdoor, you plant your crops in soil. So far, so good. And that's what humans have been doing for 10,000 years. When you are indoor, you can obviously do the same. But now that you are in a controlled environment, you can also grow your plants above the soil level through two different methods, hydroponics and aeroponics. Hydroponics consists in replacing the soil with water, 
hence the hydro for Latin speakers out there. Instead of being held in soil, the roots of the plant are held by a growth medium and lie in water. It's a mature farming practice that is being used at scale. For instance, in the Netherlands, half of the fresh produce is farmed through hydroponics, specifically tomatoes. Aeroponics consists in replacing the soil with nothing, or rather with air, hence the aeroponics. The plants are hanging in thin air with their roots apparent. This is a much more recent technology, it's still experimental, there's little production at scale to date, but there's a huge potential with companies like 1.1 trying to make this really work. So that's for soilless. And finally, to wrap it up, vertical farming, this is simply using the fact that soilless technologies are, well, soilless, and therefore they don't rely on the ground, so they can be stacked on top of each other. There's two ways of doing that. You can stack them horizontally, so you can think of growth bed on top of each other, like the floors of a building, or it can be done vertically by flipping the growing beds by 90 degrees so that they go really high up. So that's about it. That's what vertical farming is about. It's an indoor farming technique using a controlled environment, stacking hydroponics or aeroponic growth bed on top of each other. A plant in our current facility begins as a seed inside of a bin. That seed is then picked up by a couple of vacuum needles and then it drops down a tube and then goes into a plant site or, or a hole in our grow board. And then that grow board, once it's full of seeds, is picked up by the robot. It's on a vertical plane, so the board is sitting up on its edge. It's like a painting sitting on the ground. It's uh, not laying on the ground, but sitting on a ground, one of its edges. So the, the robot runs on top of the facility. The robot comes along. It picks up two grow boards at a time, lifts them up inside of the belly of the robot, and then the robot runs to wherever those plants are meant to go. And then when the robot arrives at that location, the robot drops the plants in those grow boards down into their location. And then the next seven or 10 robots come and do the same thing. Next two boards, next two boards, next two boards, next two boards. It's like that game, was it four across? I forget what it's called, but where you drop those discs in and they stack up and you have to get four across, whatever it's called. So once those plants, uh, those seeds at the time are dropped into place, then we irrigate them, we wet them, we germinate them. That takes about a, it's about a three-day process to get the plant to a point where the first sort of cotyledons, those first fake leaves, are coming out. And that's where the plant starts to photosynthesize and turn the light energy into uh, actual plant matter. So at that point, we begin uh, treating the plant with a specific kind of light, wavelength and intensity. We treat the plant with a specific kind of concentration nutrient solution that we spray onto the roots. And then we maintain the plant's temperatures, humidity, CO2 levels, all these kinds of things. Throughout the plant's life, the robot is also imaging these plants, making sure that we have the right emergence, germination rate, making sure we have the right growth rate, leaf area index, no discontinuities, no discolorations, all of these kinds of things. So there's a constant process of making sure the plant is, is growing just fine. And there are sensors all over the place to make sure that our subsystems are all functional and hitting the, hitting the set points they're meant to hit. And then at the end, when the plant has shown that it is at a stage of maturity where it's ready to harvest, the robot goes in and then picks those boards up in the opposite order and then takes them to a, a harvesting station where they're harvested and then packaged and then sent out to whomever they may be going to. Fantastic. And it, it sounds like everything you've said so far is automated. Is that correct or is there some parts that are still manual labor? We had to make a lot of decisions about what we invent, what we buy, and what we wait on. Good ideas are everywhere. The hard part is saying no to good ideas for better ideas. 
We focused very much on the main subsystems, lighting, HVAC and irrigation and the robotics. That's what we were focused on. Included in that was the automated seeding process as well. So right now we're in the process of designing and integrating automated harvesting and packaging technology. For leafy greens, that's quite straightforward. For berries, that is not straightforward, so much so that that technology barely even exists on the outdoor farm. Other than harvest and packaging, essentially every, everything inside that process is fully automated today. Okay. And can you give us a sense of, if you take a, a facility you have today, uh, I don't know if we count in pound or number of salads, but how much does that produce compared to, you know, typical outdoor farm, for instance? Sure. It, lots and lots of dependencies and variables and these kinds of things. But say, for example, a strawberry on a per square foot of floor space, outdoor farm versus our warehouse on an annual basis, we're about 150 times more strawberries per square foot of floor space than an outdoor farm is. So from a floor space perspective, it's much more, much more productive. Okay. And so you said that vertical farming is not new in terms of concepts, but the raising of different companies and the funding of this industry is quite new. It's, it's only a few years old. What happened? What changed over the last year? Is it the, the technology cost going down? Is it the environmental concern? What has made the industry really like come to life? It's just like flying cars were come up with in the 40s and 50s. It took still 2017 to get one in the air. Specifically for vertical farming, there are a couple of peripheral technologies like uh, computational devices and general availability of sensors and pumps and just the access to the phenomenal number of components that we can now integrate into the technology. But the main one was LEDs, almost by far and away. So the automation certainly allows us to get another huge chunk of those operating expenses out. But the thing that was holding vertical farms back was if you have to use anything but LEDs, the capital cost, the heat generation, the failure rates just don't allow you to develop a vertical farming technology that's cost effective. So the main innovation that was external to vertical farming that allowed this to work was LED technology. Do I understand that correctly that, you know, vertical farming, you need artificial light because you're, you're stacking the growth beds. You could do that with a, a traditional light, like a, a light bulb, but that's very inefficient because the, the plant is not absorbing all the light rays and LED is really using less electricity for the same efficiency. Yes. Yeah, so LEDs, number one, are much more efficient with their electricity. Number two, we can target those electrons into the kind of photons that we, we like, the wavelengths that we care about. But actually one of the major differences is LED lights don't emit much heat at all. Filament lights emit a huge amount of heat. And removing that heat and treating that air to drop the temperature of the air again is phenomenally expensive. So heat, funnily enough, rather than light, I suppose heat is light, is a, is a, was one of the major reasons. And I guess we're touching also on one of the common criticism against vertical farming, right? The light use. The, the argument being that conventional agriculture has natural sunlight, so no additional energy use. Vertical farming has all this tremendous climate and environmental positive impact, but has additional energy use. What is your perspective on this, on this energy and additional electricity use? It's absolutely true. And it isn't a major concern of mine. The reason being nothing is a panacea. Like if we came across and we said, well, we let's imagine that there is some source of energy, cough, cough, nuclear, that is 
an incredible source of energy with low waste, with no CO2 emissions, people would then find something else to say, well, that's the issue, that's the issue. From a societal perception perspective, it is not a concern of mine. From an operational cost and from an efficiency perspective, it is a concern of mine. Making ourselves more efficient with light, making sure we pull in less energy per farm, these kinds of things are, are fundamentally important to the success of our yeah. business. I suppose we're a little more candid than others, but uh, from an optics perspective and from a messaging perspective, yeah. I mean, we use a lot of energy, there's no doubt about it. But we kick the butt of agriculture in almost every, every other realm. 150x more plants per square foot, 99% less water, 99% less land, zero pesticides, zero seasonality, yada, 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 yada. So it's just a trade-off. And if a consumer says, you know, I don't like that these farms are consuming a lot of electricity, I'm going to go back to consuming pesticide-laden outdoor farming product, that's, that is absolutely their decision. We're unapologetic about that. You know, we use a lot of light. That's absolutely true. We're doing our best to drop our, our use of electricity. But if all we could do was absolutely perfect or nothing, we would still be in caves. And, I mean, Tesla is using a lot of energy, producing their batteries and, and, and assembling their cars. Mm. Is there a perspective on trying to source this energy as cleanly as possible? Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like, we aren't excited to put a facility next to a coal plant and these kinds of things. Trust me, mate. Like, that's why I said nuclear. We want to source our energy responsibly. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Okay, let's talk about the impact of food production on the environment and how can vertical farming address it. Food production actually has a huge environmental impact, both in terms of emissions as well as in terms of natural resource use. In terms of emissions, food production represents a quarter of all greenhouse gas emission. The number is actually broken down in three parts. The largest share of emissions, slightly more than half of them, comes from livestock production. So these are primarily due to methane emission from cows' digestive process, but also from the conversion of forests into agricultural land to feed these animals. Another 30% of food production emissions is related to crops for human consumption. Most of these emissions are linked to the use of nitrogen fertilizers, which is necessary to support the plant growth. But in a conventional farming method, to get the plant, the nitrogen is put into the soil and only a fraction of the nitrogen is absorbed by the plant. The rest is oxidized into nitrogen oxide, a gas that is 300 times more potent than CO2. So that is not good. In hydroponics or aeroponics, because there is no soil, all of the nutrients go to the plant directly. So there is no production of nitrous oxide. Finally, about 20% of the food production emissions are related to the supply chain. So that's all the step to bring the product from the farm to the end consumer. For instance, a salad that's being eaten in New York will have traveled 3,000 miles or 4,500 kilometers by truck from Salinas in California all the way to New York. In the same way, if you're eating a berry in San Francisco, that's a 4,000-mile journey or 6,000 kilometers from Mexico where most of the berries are produced. By setting up a controlled environment, vertical farms can be placed next to the consumption centers to produce salads near New York and berries near San Francisco massively simplifying and shortening the food supply chain. Now, we talk a lot about greenhouse gas emissions, and rightly so, because they're the root cause of climate change, but we should not forget broader environmental impacts. The challenge we're facing today is not only climate change, but it's biodiversity extinction, the depletion of natural resources. And this is where vertical farming truly shines in two key ways. One, vertical farming can significantly reduce 
freshwater use. We often take for granted as a natural resource water, but in many regions of the world, we're seeing drier and drier weather and shrinking water reserves. The primary user of freshwater is agriculture. It is responsible for a whopping 70% of the freshwater use. So reducing that consumption is absolutely key. The great news, as Sam mentioned, is that vertical farms can use up to 99% less water than a conventional outdoor farm to grow the same plants. So that's an incredible saving of resource. Practically what this means is that a salad grown outdoor in California will use 30 gallon per pound, that's 250 liter per kilo. With aeroponics, that same salad would use less than a gallon or a few liters of waters. This number might seem really high, but salad production is not that water intensive. Blueberries require four times more water. Almonds require 70 times more water than a salad per pound of production. The second incredible environmental benefit of vertical farming is to free up land from agricultural use. Not only does land use lead to emissions as we saw before, because you're replacing the carbon sink with an open field, but it's also a process that's destroying the ecosystems and the biodiversity they host. When you replace a rich, balanced ecosystem with an open field treated with herbicides and pesticides to only produce a single crop as efficiently as possible, then the biodiversity collapses. Vertical farming, by producing 150 times more crop per acre, has the potential of freeing up that land that would otherwise be used for agricultural purposes and to restore that land to its natural state with functional ecosystem services and biodiversity. So vertical farms, definitely a way to reduce carbon footprints for fruits and the vegetables, assuming the energy is sourced responsibly, but it is also most importantly, a way of drastically reducing water use and land use. Let's shift gear a bit and talk about the, the customer value proposition. You mentioned there's a, a cost challenge with vertical farming today. Could you run us a bit through the economics versus the conventional farming economics and how that should evolve in the coming years if everything goes to plan? 10 years ago, it really didn't make much sense to develop this technology because the economics weren't good enough to scale it. The, the crops that it could grow properly were consumed at such low volumes, it didn't make sense to pump hundreds of millions of dollars of VC money. Now that herbs are profitable and microgreens are profitable and five ounce clamshells of leafy greens are profitable, then we move into the one pound. In a few years, we slide down that unit economics curve, then it'll be one pound clamshells of spinach. And then it will be loose leaf clamshells of all kinds of leafy greens. Uh, then it will be strawberries and then blueberries and then raspberries and then cannabis and then biopharmaceuticals. I mean, this is it, it's each of these crops has a price of production threshold that's based upon what the consumer is willing to pay and based upon how quickly the plant grows to what weight and what inputs are required. So it's just this. It's a relatively complicated algorithm, but it's simple in its concept, which is there are a certain number of inputs and a certain certain output price that it must be at a certain output price that the consumer will then pay another 45% on top of because that's what the retailer takes. So it's simple from that perspective, but the technology, the non-recurring engineering, the, the innovation on the plant science side, which should never be forgotten, all of that takes a lot of highly intelligent people, not me, highly intelligent people figuring out how to solve those problems. Yeah, you're, you're underselling yourself, Sam. Trust me, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so is that why you start with, and, and most vertical farms start with microgreens because the, the 
price per ounce is very high. The plant grows, the, the seed is inexpensive, the plant takes seven days to grow, it grows to a relatively high yield, you really don't need much light, you really don't need much temperature control, you don't need vision, you don't need imagery to determine what the germination rate is, the harvest process is extremely cheap, and then the sales price per ounce is very high. And then you move on to other leafy greens, I mean, to salads, for instance, and so on. Yes. Fruits as well, I think strawberry is something that is, is being explored. Big time, big time. Can you theoretically do anything or is there biological constraints? We can do anything, we don't do everything. So you can grow a watermelon on a vertical plane aeroponically, you can grow a peach tree, you can grow all kinds of things. But it comes back to that same question, in order for us to agree to put this into our crop development pipeline, it needs to pass the unit economics test. And are some crops will never pass that unit economics test? I don't know if we're talking about corn or you mentioned peach that will just never make sense i mean to quote one of the best philosophers of all time justin bieber never say never i would say the way this is going to stratify in the 10 to 20 year horizon is that the outdoor farm will continue to grow the commodity products like the wheat the soybeans the corn the greenhouse will grow warmer climate products like the peppers cucumbers these kinds of things and then the indoor farm is going to grow all the high value products uh, of which there are many so that's how it will stratify over the 10 to 20 year period. But eventually, like horses and trains were largely phased out from a transportation perspective, eventually the, the car will take over, the vertical farm will take over. But it'll take a long time. I mean, this is, and I keep re referring, it'll get annoying, I'm sure, but I keep referring back to the transportation industry, the car industry, because the rate at which that industry is being transformed will be a very similar rate to the rate at which the agricultural industry will be transformed. Actually, that leads to a question on financing, because today you've done venture capital financing over $50 million, which is incredibly important to scale to the first two facilities you have. What is the financing model or the partnership model you're considering moving forward? So, you know, you have two facilities. How do you get 100 or 200 facilities that cannot be simply financed through equity? Is there uh, debt financing? Is there licensing models to, to scale that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a fair bit of debt project financing around. Vertical farming has quite unproven economics and still is somewhat foreign to those kinds of pools of capital. The way that we're going is different. We see a lot of vertical farming competitors building technology and then building a brand and then building their own farms and selling the produce through the brand. Their product is the produce. We are going to have our customers buy farms. So building 150, 200 farms over the next seven years would be very difficult to raise that money on our own. I think we could, other companies have, it's not, it's not completely ridiculous, but the rate at which we can scale the technology is dramatically increased if we can sell the farms themselves. So that's the path that we're going down. Uh, we start with $2 million units and essentially from a modular perspective, scale up from there. The agricultural supply chain is the way it is because of the geographical constraints. You can't grow Salinas lettuce on the East Coast in the same way they grow on the West Coast. When you decouple those things and you put the farm right next to the retailer or even right next to the consumer, you aren't anymore selling to the grower or the packer or the distributor or the marketer or even the retail store. The lower we get in that supply chain in terms of self-distributing retailers, e-commerce retailers, these kinds of things, they're actually more the target more than anyone else. Though they do not have experience or expertise in plant cultivation, and at the face of it, people would say, well, they don't want to do that kind of business with that business model. 
we have had a lot of inbound interest from these organizations because of the immense supply chain issues associated with the supply chains that they're dealing with right now. So we are looking at the entire supply chain as our customer because it's more about the, the innovative nature of the individuals within the organization than anything. This is kind of an innovate or die kind of moment in agriculture. These businesses are in pain, but it is also the fact that if they don't innovate now with respect to their produce supply, uh, they're going to be in trouble. And have you ever done the thought process of thinking of how many vertical farms would be needed in the U.S.? You know, if you look at the existing base of production of salads, spinach, berries, and so on, just help me think of, is that 15 farms or is that 15,000 farms that you would need? Again, a lot of dependencies depends what crop, depends what the consumption rate is. It depends on the size of the farm. You know, we sell $2 million units, but someone might buy 10 of those $2 million units to put in one place. So it's on the order of a thousand significantly large vertical farms to supply the United States with their supply of leafy greens, microgreens, herbs. Uh, and then if you want to tack on other kinds of berries, strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, it's a lot higher than that again. Okay. Yeah. So it's quite sizable. Yeah. There's a lot of room. And that, that's actually my next question. You mentioned that there are a lot of players today that are in the vertical farming space. Some of the different business model, different approaches. I mentioned Bowery, Plenty, 80 Acre. How do you see this market moving forward? Do you think there is space for this fragmentation? Maybe there'll be, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 players in, in a decade from now. Or does it make sense to have, you know, only two, three leading players in that field? I would say five. I think there are going to be five players. There's going to be a lot of consolidation over the coming five to 10 years, I would say. Lots of disparate companies working on largely the same technology with maybe a different, and we're a, we're a very different technology. Vertical plane aeroponics and the automation, that's, that's very different than the rest of them. Most of them are just taking greenhouse technology and stacking it up, right? So uh, we, I'm, we're going to see a lot of consolidation in that space whether the consolidation occurs because the smaller businesses are in financial pain or whether it's because the larger businesses want to scale quickly and not get blocked by IP, that's, that remains to be seen. But I think it's going to be f around five global players that uh, will be developing the technology that grows the future of these high value plants. And how have you felt about this journey? Because it's been several years now, and I think that the big difference between this climate tech entrepreneurship wave and, you know, more like traditional software SaaS wave before is that you're hands-on, right? You're working with a nozzle that are not working. Uh, the plants are dead. Uh, it, it's a very practical thing to make this company work. So how have you felt personally in this journey? And you know, maybe if you could do something differently or change something throughout that journey, what would that be? We have a great team, let me say that first, but I would be much stricter on who we let into the company. There are enough difficult moments in a business just trying to grow the business and develop the technology having toxicity within the team that harms good people and you know puts dark ideas in their head about in you know, management or whatever. Again, not that we're perfect, not we haven't made mistakes, but some individuals bring an unnecessary amount of pain to the business. So be really careful with you who you're hiring and performance is one thing, but culture and heart are a very different thing. So find ways to allow that to emerge from your interviewing uh, candidates. That's a big one. Uh, always the trade-off between internal development and external development was a question. Do we develop this technology now? Do we buy off the shelf for a substandard solution and prove more abstracted concepts, even though the components of that abstraction 
are not perfect. You know, so many of these are just purely circumstantial. I don't have some, at least I don't think I do, I don't have some uh, rubric or process to be able to make those decisions. It's, but, that, but that's why it's so important to have the right people in the business. If you're asking me to make a decision about what kind of strawberry cultivar we should be going after, no, don't do that. It's so important to have people who know what the hell they're talking about within the business. One final thing I would have done differently is focus earlier on commercialization. I don't think we were necessarily late, but I think that the conversations at the beginning were so heavily weighted on the technology that the business model should have been developed much, much earlier and the go-to-market would have been slightly different for us. But in looking back, hindsight's 2020, with the context that we have now, I think we as an organization have done a very good job of spending very little money over a five-year period to get a significant piece of technology up in Arizona and a, a very important uh, demonstration facility in San Jose as well. And maybe to wrap this up, can you share one useful resource that you'd recommend anyone to, to I don't know, listen if it's a podcast, watch if it's a movie, or, or read if it's a book? It could be on, you know, agriculture, it could be something else that matters for you. Actually, funnily enough, philosophy books and, and philosophy concepts, Stoicism specifically, you know, a book by Ben Horowitz, I believe it was uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. That's a, that's a really good book to read because so many other books uh, like Startup for Dummies are very practical and they provide great information, but so often the problems that actually stump you are problems that are not inside Startup for Dummies. It is this person's doing that thing with that person and they're saying that which has an impact on that person and then it screwed up a deal and it's heavily circumstantial. But if you're trying to figure out techniques to get through the startup process, so many of them have to do with how you deal with your own brain. <laughs> your own brain is not you, first of all. You are the interpreter of your brain. And your brain has a life of its own and a mind of its own to be as corny as possible to sending thoughts your way and disbelief and overemphasizing this thing and underemphasizing that thing. Don't let your brain trick you. Have control of your thoughts as best you can. Have control of your mind as best you can. And that will allow you, I think, to come up with good solutions and manage the stress properly. I was hoping for a Justin Bieber reference, but I guess he hasn't written a book yet. His, his, his but... earlier albums were just so phenomenally good, weren't they? <laughs> Especially for entrepreneurship. That, that's, that's the tips to follow. <laughs> never say never, mate. It's, it's tattooed on my shoulder. <laughs> Sam, is there anything I forgot to ask you? Any, any other tip, any question you would have liked to talk about today? Battle. Business is a sport. Treat it that way. In the good and the bad. Uh, it is not the be all and end all, but at the same time, you need to take it very, very seriously. A, a necessary but insufficient element of all of this is to absolutely battle your ass off. Don't come in here expecting to revolutionize an industry or even a product and have the hubris to think that it's going to be easy or that you know someone else hasn't thought of it. This is a grind and 90% of the time you're going to be in the dark on your own, having a tough time maybe, who knows. That's where the stoicism and the philosophy and that ocean of self-belief and belief in your organization, that must be there in order for you to succeed. Thank you so much, Anas. It's been such an inspiration to hear from you this story. Good, mate. I'm glad. I'm glad. Hopefully I can inspire one person.
I'm sure you, you do more than one, and I'm I'm very excited to see where uh, 1.1 will keep growing in the in the coming years. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Florian. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation with Sam. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you all on our next episode.